Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Dada, with episode 161 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, it's Thursday, and you know what that means. We are here, as we are every week, to talk all things NXT and AEW with AEW Dynamite this week presenting a very special Blood and Guts episode of its television program. That means we have a long show ahead and the Silver King is not going to waste much time off the top before we get into all of the action. But you know the rules, you know what we got to do here. We got to take care of business before we get into the meat of the show. So as always, a reminder about what the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about. It is all about the five. That means heading over to Apple Podcasts, dropping a five-star, 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 five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love this show. Every single rating, every single review helps us in those Apple Podcast rankings. And really, the reviews are almost as important as the ratings themselves. Also, do not forget to head on over to Twitter. Give us a follow at Getting Over. Cast. That is where we break down every major American TV show live during it. We also provide commentary throughout the week, breaking news, and of course, episode drops as soon as we publish them to our platform. So those are the reminders. Those are now out of the way. We're going to get right into the meat of the show. Now, while AEW Dynamite Blood and Guts was the bigger program this week in terms of promotion, you know, NXT is now a full day before AEW. So I think the way this show is going to work is almost every single week, we're going to go with NXT ahead of AEW with the exception of when there are ultimate previews. When those are occurring, we will certainly do NXT in the back half of the show. So this week, as always, we will start with NXT. And of course, do not forget, there are timestamps in our episode description. So if you want to jump back and forth, if you want to hear my takes on AEW Blood and Guts right off the bat. Go back and listen to NXT afterward. You can do it. Hit our description. Check those timestamps and fast forward as appropriate. But as always, the Silver King hopes that you listen to the entire show. As I said, we're going to start with NXT. And I just really need to say that top to bottom, this was an incredible episode of NXT on Tuesday night. Six matches, five segments, and a couple of vignettes all inside of about two hours and eight minutes. The main event on its own got 17 minutes. I've said that the last two weeks have been good to fair that we've gotten from NXT. But this was back to NXT being great. And next week's show is loaded as well. So there's a lot to look forward to going into next week. NXT just, it seems to succeed in every single way that Raw does not. The main event scenario is interesting. The women's division is booked well and given plenty of time. It mixes great wrestling with comedic segments that are actually funny and entertaining characters. It utilizes the entire roster rotationally. It has factions. And it does all of this inside of two hours, where Raw struggles to do almost any of it and has three hours each week. We talk about SmackDown and Raw being different, but these shows, Raw and NXT, are now back-to-back on the same network. And NXT as a product continues to just prove to everyone that it is so far superior to Raw that it's insane. So 
NXT, this is the thought. It's really such good shit. Anyway, let's get to what happened on Tuesday night. In the main event, we had a women's tag team title match, Ember Moon and Shotzi Blackheart against The Way in a street fight. In the locker room, The Way were getting ready, getting pumped up when Dexter Loomis appeared with flowers behind a door, but Candice LeRae pulled the blinds so Indy Hartwell could not see. Then Frankie Monet's dog took a shit in Shotzi Blackheart's tank. So they didn't take the tank to the ring. It was just really funny backstage segments before a very important, serious type of match. Shotzi and Ember were dressed as Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, respectively, for the match. They immediately pulled out a ton of weapons, like as soon as the bell rang. Hartwell was put under a trash can and double drop kicked for a near fall. Then the faces bashed LeRae's head with a pair of trash can lids. Hartwell took out the champions and set up four chairs. The champions put a chair atop those and put Hartwell in it. Shotzi went for a tope suicida, but LeRae stopped her with a fire extinguisher. The way then set a long ladder on the ring apron and barricade and a table in the corner of the ring, which were obviously alluding to a couple big spots we would get later. Hartwell broke up a double team near fall on LeRae, who wound up atop of that ladder before Blackheart absolutely annihilated her through it with a senton off the top rope that did not land in the middle of the ladder and therefore did not snap the ladder in half. Instead, it snapped the side of it because it was set up on an angle. It was just absolutely crazy. Then inside the ring, Ember Moon threw Hartwell into the table, but it didn't break in the middle either because it wasn't set up on steep enough of an angle for that to happen. So two really, really hard bumps that were not meant to be as hard as they ended up being, but still were just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, LeRae then hit an assisted springboard moonsault onto Shotzi through an elevated ladder, but Moon broke that fall. Hartwell hit a picturesque spinebuster on Moon into a ladder, but Shotzi broke the fall. Shotzi then broke a coffee mug, Wade Barrett's coffee mug, over Indy, climbed the truss near the announce table, and splashed her way through it. Indy did a springboard elbow drop onto Moon into that table outside the ring, truly out of nowhere. I didn't even know she could do a move like that. LeRae hit Shotzi with brass knuckles that were first missed by commentary as they were calling the finish. But then they caught them later on when they were kind of recapping it. Then she followed those brass knuckles with Wicked Stepsister into a chair on Shotzi for the one, two, three, and an absolutely shocking title change. Given that these championships were just introduced like seven weeks ago, and now we already have our third set of champions. Aside from being floored at the result of the match, which I don't hate at all because it establishes the weight even further, this was an absolute stunner of a match. It was a 30-minute booking accomplished in 17 minutes. It was a car wreck in the best possible way. It won't get the love that probably the Hikaru Shida-Britt Baker match did because there wasn't a blade job and like a entire face full of blood. But this was exceptional. It wasn't exceptional compared to the norm in NXT because we've seen crazy matches like this before from the women. And that Sheeta-Baker match was exceptional even compared to the norm in AEW. That's how much better it was than what we normally get from AEW. So I think by comparison, this won't get the love that that did, but it doesn't make it any less awesome. LeRae finally gets her first WWE title after five years being in NXT. Everyone, all four of the women, were elevated from the booking. No joke, as soon as NXT was over, I rewound and started the match from the beginning. This was great. It was a 
4.25 star A-level match. They deserve a lot of credit. And I don't know that they're getting enough credit for how good this was. And knowing how much I love the way, you guys know this was particularly exciting for me. Candice got her first title and she did it without Johnny's assistance. The heels won clean by outsmarting the faces. No interference, no bullshit, they just beat them. And it further establishes the way as a strong faction where three of the four members are now champions. Everything worked. This was a takeover match on TV. And I gotta say, we know Candice LeRae is great. We know Shotzi Blackheart is somewhat of a psychopath, but in the best way. We know how good Ember Moon is. Indy Hartwell, as an up-and-coming superstar, learning under Candice LeRae's wing, it was obvious by the end of this match, Indy Hartwell has it. Now let's move over to the match that opened the show, Swerve against Leon Ruff in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Swerve dominated from the bell, obliterating Ruff outside. He hit an awesome vertical superplex off the top rope. Ruff barely dodged Swerve, throwing a toolbox at his head. Ruff ran backstage, so Swerve powerbombed him into the lockers and ran a road case into him. Ruff blindsided Swerve with a light and then did a cannonball off the stage for a near fall. Ruff countered a lifting suplex into an awesome but accidental release crucifix bomb for another near fall. Ruff then ran up the stairs and hit a sick poison rana on Swerve off the ring apron. He did like an entire flip, but Swerve then flipped Ruff from the barricade for a confidence boost and a 2.8 count on the fall. Ruff dodged a run into the stairs, drilled Swerve in the knee with a toolbox and hit a frog splash in the ring. And I thought that was the finish. I really did, but Swerve kicked out a 2.9, thankfully. Ruff got Swerve in a knee bar trying to take advantage of his injured knee, hit a springboard cutter inside and another one outside. He clotheslined Swerve over the barricade and then climbed a ladder near the camera platform. And he's about to jump off. And I'm like, okay, something fishy is gonna happen here, but I did not expect to happen what did. Suddenly, AJ Francis shows up. uh, Ruff decides to jump onto him instead of Swerve. Francis catches him midair flying, hit a fireman's carry slam onto the top of the barricade, and then Swerve brought Ruff inside the ring, hit the JML driver, and got the win. This was an exceptionally fun match, don't get me wrong, but it did feel disjointed at parts. After all of this time, Swerve needed to beat Ruff clean, on his own. This is not a a muscle-bound Bronson Reed type of dude. I don't mind Swerve having a crew, but he needs Francis to help beat a guy who's listed at 157 pounds. The finish was a letdown, but it was entertaining overall. And it was probably like a 3.25 or a 3.5 for like a B or a B plus type of match for a false count anywhere because the stipulation was solid. That said, look, I'm completely here for the idea of a heel record label type of faction. It also looks like it has Ashanti the Adonis and Brianna Brady as the other two members. It's another unique stable for NXT, to go along with the way and and the Imperium and some of the other things that they have going on right now. And I love how inventive NXT is being with some of its stables and factions. But for a match like this, man, I would have just rather Francis showed up and like stood in front of Swerve and that screwed with Ruff's mind. Ruff jumps off, Swerve catches him, counters him, and then Swerve ends up winning. I don't need a guy to help Swerve beat Ruff. It just... It was totally unnecessary and it made Swerve, I don't want to say it made him look weak, but it didn't allow him to look strong like he should have coming out of a win against freaking Leon Ruff. That's how I look at it. Moving on, we had Cameron Grimes against Asher Hale. 
It was a good wrestling match that gave Grimes a chance to get a clean win with the Caven. Hale, by the way, is Anthony Henry from Evolve, who was recently signed to NXT. Ever Rise tried to party with Grimes, but he ditched them backstage later. The bouncer at a club wouldn't let Grimes into the venue because it was rented out. And then suddenly the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, his limo pulls up and he told Grimes, you never get a VIP booth when you can just buy the whole club. He laughed in his face. It was pretty funny. I like the interactions between these two, but I don't know where it's going. Like, what is the end here? Is Grimes going to learn under million dollar man's wing? Is he going to attack him? I don't exactly know what the booking is, but it is interesting and I do like the interactions. We had Caden Carter and Casey Cantanzaro cut a promo backstage about being done with Ken Shaw and having no desire to get involved in that. I think that's weird because clearly this feud was still happening and I assumed they would do a women's tag team match with the Tian Shaw leader being involved. Maybe someone got hurt. We haven't seen Tian Shaw in weeks, so I, I don't really know what's happening, but that is clearly something they were trying to get over. Uh, the, anyway, Carter and Kent Nazaro, the Casey's, I don't know why they don't call them that, uh, said that they are focused on the NXT women's tag team titles and wanted a shot. Monet, Frankie Monet showed up, called them adorable and said she was rooting for them, but they shouldn't expect to win the titles anytime soon. I really like how Monet is kind of pissing off each face woman on the roster one by one. I do wonder also what the end result of that is going to be. You assume she's going to cross someone that is going to want to fight her. I kind of want to see Taya Valkyrie in a WWE ring, right? So let's kind of make that happen. We also got Grizzled Young Veterans versus Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher in a tag team match. GYV insulted the crowd, but their catchphrase got cut off. Ciampa and Thatcher were wearing matching gear, making them, I guess, more of a tag team. This was hard hitting, as you would expect from these four guys. Ciampa had a great hot tag where he ran the ropes about a dozen times with corner shots and clotheslines. Ciampa got knocked over the announce table and the finish came as the referee was distracted with Ciampa trying to enter the ring, throwing Wade Barrett's shoe that he stole off of him to Thatcher, which Thatcher used on Zach Gibson behind the referee's back prior to a submission victory. It was pretty inventive, and it showed that even though Ciampa and Thatcher are faces, they're all about winning. They're not above doing what is necessary to get the job done. It was a surprising booking to me. I thought GYV was clearly going to win, but it totally worked for me. This was probably a 3.25 star, like a B match. It was really entertaining. And I was just kind of floored again by the surprising finish. I love how NXT gives us finishes that are not always expected. AEW has done that as well recently. But again, you have Raw where that is almost never the case. Uh, Johnny Gargano and Austin Theory interrupted a meeting between William Regal and Scarlett. Theory was remarking how huge something was on Scarlett. Looking down, we thought, at her breasts but he was actually talking about her nails. They found Regal later, but Gargano failed to get out of his North American title match with Bronson Reed, and Regal scheduled Theory to fight Karrion Cross next week. I love these guys, funny as usual, and the idea of Karrion Cross being this dominant champion, but getting all these, you know, middle of the road type of feuds, I like it while we wait for him to have these upcoming title matches. Cross came out to the ring later, and reiterated that all challengers need to do is roll the dice and step up. He said he would leave Theory unconscious next week when Kyle O'Reilly's music hit. He told Cross that he's not afraid of him and wants the NXT title. Next out was Pete Dunne saying he's the baddest man in NXT. Then Finn Balor came out saying he's already beaten Dunne and O'Reilly twice. He immediately swung at Cross. Everyone brawled with Balor and Cross fighting each other and security. Once everyone got separated, Gargano in theory attacked Cross from behind and leveled him with a double super kick and a title shot to the face. 
It was a really hot segment, a lot of people involved, but Cross was no-selling way too much to, when he was having three guys basically attack him. The fact that he was laid out in the end made it somewhat okay because it showed that he is vulnerable somehow, but it basically took five guys over a period of two minutes attacking him for him to actually be taken out. I presume we're gonna get a triple threat match with the winner fighting Cross. I could see maybe Adam Cole costing Kyle O'Reilly either the number one contendership or the title, reigniting that feud sooner or later. But again, if they aren't doing a loser leaves town match, then I'm not sure the point of going back to that. I would like to see some fresh blood in the main event. All of this feels very repetitive to me, but it's not directly repetitive because now Cross is the one who's the champion. It just feels like we've seen a lot of Kyle O'Reilly challenging. We saw Dunn have a match. We've seen Finn Balor a bunch because he was obviously the champion. I kind of want someone else to be elevated into that part of the roster. And it just doesn't feel like, it feels very stagnant, I guess is the best way to put it. We had Soraya against Zayda Ramir. For an unannounced match, NXT did a really good job of making it interesting with a quick video package. Saray hit a basement dropkick that looked like legitimately it decapitated Ramir over the bottom rope. Uh, Saray folded Ramir with a German suplex, then dropped her violently with a Saito-style suplex for the clean win. Later backstage, Zoe Stark stopped Tony Storm from attacking Ramir after the match as Saray was there checking on her. Storm later tore down Stark in an exceptionally good backstage promo. Fun little match. I love the secondary storylines for the women's division. This was all very good stuff. Imperium met in the locker room with Walter speaking to them in Austrian or German. I think it was German through an iPad. And I think Alexander Wolf looked upset by the conversation, but I couldn't really tell if that was the point of what he was trying to get across. There was another Diamond Mine vignette that showed fighters in MMA gloves and an octagon-like cage with some nondescript phrases. It didn't really go any further to kind of explaining what this is. I will tell you, I am slightly pessimistic about this. I don't know that an MMA training um, group or a separate show that is done inside of a cage like this is gonna work for WWE. I mean, they certainly tried doing something like this with Raw Underground, if it if it is this. And clearly that, while it had some merit to it and it was exciting on occasion, to do that longer term doesn't seem like it would be successful. I just don't even know what this is. If it is a separate show, if it is a faction, if it's gonna be a part of NXT. So look, I love the mystery and I'm pretty cool with them stringing us along and then delivering it later. But MMA stuff in wrestling, it works sometimes and doesn't work most of the time. So I am slightly pessimistic on it, but again, we'll give it an opportunity. We'll see what it actually is before we judge it. LA Knight fought Jake Atlas in a singles match. Knight quoted Slick Rick or Jay-Z, if you're not old school, like I am, uh, then called the crowd incels as part of his typical promo. He won with the BFT, a stunner-like move. This did nothing to push me positively towards Knight. I keep waiting for him to pop me. He's just not. I know a lot of people really like him. So if you like him, that's cool. Just not my style, at least not right now. Santos Escobar, Legado del Fantasma, were in the ring with Escobar again saying he would recapture the Cruiserweight title. As Joaquin Wilde said, they embarrassed MSK and Raul Mendoza challenged for the tag team title. Kushida appeared on the video accepting the Cruiserweight title match next week, but MSK did not answer. You guys know my thoughts here. Look, this, these will be great matches. There's no question. Escobar absolutely 
must move on. I hate that he's even challenging for it again, but they better have him lose to Kushida. As long as they do that, I'm okay. I love that they're going with a two of three falls stipulation though, to at least make that match a little bit more interesting and not a direct rematch from what we previously got. Raquel Gonzalez and Mercedes Martinez did a split screen interview with Beth Phoenix. Gonzalez and Martinez kept talking trash and interrupting each other. Martinez said she paved the roads for Gonzalez uh, and Gonzalez was now cruising on them to win the title and that she got down and dirty in her career while Gonzalez was cookie cutter. Martinez absolutely destroyed Gonzalez in this, just like a true veteran should. It was a great back and forth that set up their match for next week exceedingly well. I'm fully bought into this, and I love the idea that Martinez isn't just attacking Gonzalez as a veteran, but she's doing it as a Latina who's a veteran, and kind of saying, hey, look, you're getting these opportunities in more ways than one because of the path that I set. It's really exciting. It's good storytelling. And I think they're going to have a great match next week with Martinez really solidifying Gonzalez as the champion because she's going to be able to go over someone, a veteran who is great in the ring, like Mercedes Martinez. We've seen what she did for a lot of the superstars in the Mae Young Classic. I think she's going to do the same thing here for Raquel Gonzalez. Got a DM slide from Lil underscore Nate at MT Stewart 4. He said, I think... NXT is the blueprint of how you make a perfect wrestling show. He's referring to this Tuesday show specifically. They progressed so many stories while introducing new ones. They gave talent doing promos enough time to get themselves over. And the action in the matches was excellent across the board. For this not being a themed episode, was this the best episode of NXT you can remember? So I, I you know, there's been so many episodes of NXT that I don't know I can go back and necessarily say this was the best full stop. But it was a near perfect two hours of a wrestling TV show. It's exactly how it should be done. Maybe not every week because for it to be this fast paced and with these crazy matches, I don't think you want that every week. But most weeks to get a two hour wrestling show like we got from NXT, that's exactly what I want. I think it's exactly what a lot of fans want. The ratings don't seem to indicate that, but I think that's mostly because WWE is still treating NXT as its third brand, where you have AEW Dynamite as the only show in town if you are invested in that company. So WWE needs to work on how it promotes NXT because there's no way a show like we got on Tuesday should be getting 760,000 viewers while Raw gets 1.9 million. Like it just, it doesn't compute for me. And I know that WWE caters to a PG audience and it caters, you know, to different types of fans who are invested in the brands of Raw and SmackDown. I get it. But if they have that much might and muscle where they're getting 1.9 for Raw and 2.2 for SmackDown, you gotta be able to promote a show better than for it to get 760,000 viewers on a Tuesday when there's nothing on TV. Just Tuesday's a dead night. Uh, So you gotta start establishing that NXT is a must-watch show. And if they start putting on episodes like they did on Tuesday, they will definitely establish that. Let's move over to AEW Dynamite, Blood and Guts, a very special edition of AEW this week. We will get started with the Blood and Guts match because that's really what this entire thing is all about. Not gonna give a prelude into this because the match is so important and so singular in its focus that my take on the show is really gonna be determined, right, by what happens in the Blood and Guts match. So we had the Inner Circle and we had Pinnacle in a old school war games match. Not what war games is now in NXT, but what it used to be in WCW, a four-sided 
basically Hell in a Cell structure with a roof, uh, with two rings. So that's what we got. The factions, as they walked out, they looked awesome. Uh, in all black and all white with Santana and Ortiz wearing Dead President's type of face paint. The crowd was on fire also. So a lot of credit to them for creating a great atmosphere, not only at the start of the match, but all the way through the entrances for like each individual person and largely through the finish, at least through the five on five battle. The crowd was really, really hot. Sammy Guevara was first in. He had a springboard cutter on Dax Harwood before Sean Spears entered with a chair. Harwood bladed five minutes into the match. Ortiz was next in. Guevara and Spears did an insane tightrope leaping Spanish fly. And then, and that was incredible. That was the spot of the match as far as I'm concerned. Then Sammy, unfortunately, badly botched another springboard move because he slipped on the top rope. I'm not sure if he bladed, but he was bloody too. Uh, Cash Wheeler was next in. He hit Ortiz with a gory special, knocking him between the cage and the ring apron. Santana was next. Then Wardlow came in and challenged inner circle three on one. He easily took them down. Wheeler was the next to blade for just no reason while he was laying on the side. Jake Hager came in and he went crazy like he had a hot tag, hitting the Hager bomb and tapping Wheeler out with an ankle lock before challenging Wardlow one-on-one. The tap out didn't count because it was not five-on-five yet. They got a minute together, uh, Hager and Wardlow, before MJF came in to help Wardlow double-team Hager. And then he started talking trash to Chris Jericho, who was last in, setting up a five-on-five standoff with each team in one ring, and then they met in the middle. JR made me laugh when, like, right as they're about to battle each other, he expresses concern that someone might roll an ankle while half the people in the ring are blading and gushing blood from their heads. Uh, The canvas and Mac got pulled up coming out of a commercial, just like NXT has done and WWE has done recently. Uh, And Sammy hit a double spike pile driver on FTR into the plywood. The top rope and turnbuckle was also ripped down on one side, but we didn't even really see how that happened because it happened not just during a commercial where it was picture in picture, but during the part of the commercial that was not picture in picture. So suddenly that's gone and it's on the ground and we don't know how if someone got run into it, if they purposely removed it, it was just down. Uh, Then in the second best spot of the match, of course, went to Sammy Guevara again. He had a Van Terminator, which you guys know is one of my favorite moves. MJF was the next one to blade really deep right in the middle of his hairline. Inner Circle was dominating with little resistance from anyone for a really long time. And it didn't make sense that while they're dominating, they're all standing up, all five of them, and all the pinnacle guys are on the ground. Why they didn't try to end the match? They were just kind of aimlessly walking around. Then Tully Blanchard jumps up onto the steel steps and opens Blood and Guts with a key that he had somehow for a completely unknown reason. And MJF climbed up the truss to the top as Jericho slowly followed him and delayed it because there was another commercial break. So Jericho finally gets to the top. We see the camera changes angles. We see there's a huge crash pad on the other side of the ring. MJF begged Jericho Uh, while they're on top of the structure, not to hurt him or punch him or kick him or something like that. But Jericho obviously ignored him, put him in walls of Jericho. And it looked like he might get a submission on top of the structure, which I thought would have been a really good finish. But because there's no one there to really break it up, right? And the referee can see someone tapping on top of the structure. So I'm pretty amped. MJF's face is bloody. It's kind of Stone Cold-esque. Jericho has him in the walls of Jericho. It's a great finish if you do that, but they don't do it. MJF low blows him from behind and starts putting him in the salt of the earth. 
So that worked for me too. He has him in a submission and I'm kind of excited. I'm like, maybe Jericho's going to tap in the same fashion I wanted MJF to tap. That doesn't happen either. The action below them completely stops in the ring with about seven to 10 minutes left in the match. And the cameras are just 100% focused on the roof. It's a 10 man match. They're focused on two dudes on the roof. And by the way, anyone can tap or surrender at any time, including people in the ring, but they just suddenly became irrelevant. MJF tagged Jericho with the diamond ring and then Jericho bladed. MJF dragged him to the ledge and yelled down to inner circle that they better surrender or he would throw Jericho off the side of the structure. So Sammy surrenders immediately, doesn't even think twice about it. The camera clearly showed Jericho directing MJF and MJF helped lift him into the, you know, up from his knees and then shoved him anyway with the camera zooming in directly on Jericho, showing a massive pad of foam and tons of cardboard printed as if it was steel plating. A dozen or so people immediately ran to Jericho's aid, scared at this huge bump he took into a cushion uh, as he opens his eyes and is like looking and like talking to people almost. Uh, Then the camera goes back to MJF. He screams, thank you. And that's how the match ended. Okay, so what did I like and what didn't I like? Because there is stuff that I like, so don't get me wrong. A lot of you DM'd me, I gotta say, and agreed with my opinion that I'm about to share, so I'm not gonna read all of your DMs. I just want you to know I did get them and I did read them. Here's my take. The build to the match during the show, the design of the structure, with the exception of being able to fall down the walls, I don't like that in WWE cage matches and I don't like that here. Put the structure around the entire ring, create a landing if you need to. I don't like people going between the the cage and the you know, ring apron. That doesn't make sense. Anyway, um, the design of the entire thing, the hard top of it, and all of the early action with one entrant after the other, all of Sammy Guevara's spots, the beginning of the five-on-five brawl, all of that was great. As I predicted on Twitter also, by the way, Sammy was the MVP of the match, except for the botch. That's excusable. Shit happens. Don't worry about that. Even the concept of the finish, the general concept, with MJF being such a piece of shit that he would threaten death on a guy, get his way, and then kill the guy anyway, throwing Jericho off the top of the cage to his death, it was strong in theory. But there were a number of issues with it. Number one, it's not really an appropriate end to a match like this, as it ignored the other eight guys and made them irrelevant for a massive stretch at the end of the match. This is faction warfare, not one-on-one Hell in a Cell. If this was a Hell in a Cell match, and this was the threat, and Sammy came out and threw in the towel, the proverbial towel, for Jericho, then it would have worked as a finish. But because it was a five-on-five match, you're not involving the factions. You're taking it out and making it all about the leaders which means those other eight guys, you're basically telling your crowd and your fans, these people are irrelevant. It's all about 51-year-old Jericho, however old he is, and 25-year-old MJF. So that's kind of where the conceptualization of the finish was good because the goal was to make MJF an even bigger piece of shit than he already is, but also where it was bad because you're ignoring the fact that this is a faction-based match. And that totally got away from them. Also, we already know MJF is a massive piece of shit in kayfabe. Like, 
All he does is things that make him a terrible human being. So I don't know that you still need to build him up even further as a terrible person when everyone knows clearly he's a terrible person who has just never had his comeuppance. Now, we do expect him to get that comeuppance at some point. And when that happens, that person ideally will get over massive, will get a huge pop. But he's never having the comeuppance. And I know you're trying to tell a long-term story, but you don't need to keep telling me he's a huge piece of shit. We already know he's a huge piece of shit. Now, I don't care about the name of the match. Now we're gonna get into the parts where I didn't like it. I don't care about the name of the match. The blading, the blood part of it, started way too early. Like I said, Dax bladed like three to five minutes into the match. And then every subsequent person that came in, I would say in totality, 70%, seven out of 10 people in that match bladed. Like, and there weren't massive things used to force people to blade, like a barbed wire bat. Or I know there was a fork used at one point, but I don't even know if that contributed to a blading. That's what I'm trying to say. Like there weren't things that would produce blood outside of, I guess, the steel grate, but they didn't even drag people's heads on the steel grate to create blood. So again, it was too early and it was unnecessarily excessive. You want a couple people to blade? That's cool. You don't need seven out of 10 people blading. And of course, the execution of the finish with the massive pad and the cardboard was absolutely pathetic. First of all, you need to make the crash pad way less obvious. Second, you can't cover it in cardboard, even if you print on top of it, especially when you say at first on commentary that it's concrete and it looks like steel. Third, when the bump happens, you cannot allow a close-up camera shot. It has to be from a distance to suspend the disbelief in the bump. The bump probably looked pretty good for some of the fans in attendance. It looked horrible on TV, especially when you have a camera right up in front of it and you see like the padding and you see the cardboard. Think back to that, I think it was, was it the Miz versus Shane McMahon at WrestleMania where they took that suplex off the the top of the truss into blackness? Well, it was black padding. Everyone at in the stadium, I don't know if it was WrestleMania, Royal Rumble, whatever it was, I think it was Mania. I think I was there. Everyone knew it was padding. Everyone knew what, what they were doing, but it was all black. And when they took a bump into it, it concaved. They went into it. So you didn't see the bullshit part of it. You didn't see the kayfabe. You didn't see the work. They showed you the work as clear as day in AEW. And that's the biggest problem. Let me be clear. I did not expect them to take a bump through concrete or through steel. You need to play dangerous spots as safe as possible in wrestling, especially knowing what we now know about concussions and CTE but do not sell it as something grand and then make it pathetic. Just like with the exploding barbed wire death match being a bunch of sparklers, you didn't need to say that the end of the match, the ring would explode. You didn't need to do this spot at the end of this match. You're hurting yourself by booking it this way. No one is saying that these things had to happen. Again, I would rather see them fall into an abyss or quote unquote through a stage as opposed to what we got here. Again, the story was conceptualized well. The finish was executed horrendously. And AEW does not get a break for it. Everyone backstage, except Tony Khan, is a veteran and has a ton of experience setting up spots and working with people that know how to set up spots, including Jericho, who took the bump. 
All three of the NXT War Games matches were better than this by comparison. People criticized NXT for getting rid of the roof on War Games, but doing so allowed them to do high-risk maneuvers into the ring. Cody's bump that he took off of that cell like a year ago, 16 months ago, however long, was better than this. Um, Shane McMahon's WrestleMania bump off the top of the steel cage this year was better than this. I mean, just everything was better than this. Uh, Even with the roof being raised for AEW, meaning literally the top of the structure, they could have done a lot more inside of it, more top rope moves, have people climb the sides, have people hang from the top of it. There was so much more they could have done to get creative. Instead, the creativity inside Blood and Guts was limited to the very cool springboard Spanish fly spot, Jericho putting Spears' head into a truss, which was lackluster because once it was in there, they didn't do anything. And the end with Jericho falling down for the finish. I'm not even sure how to grade this match because parts of it were really entertaining. They were great, but the finish was so bad. And the decision to move the action away from the other eight wrestlers was so terrible. So I don't know, maybe a three-star match and a B minus. Like, I think that's fair because it's not a 0.0. It was extremely entertaining for large parts of it. But I want to be fair and, and say, look, the end was really freaking bad. It was as bad maybe as the exploding barbed wire death match because I guess with that match, you can say, look, we know they're not going to explode a ring. But it was at least part of the gimmick. This was unnecessary. It, they didn't need to do this as the finish. And if they couldn't do it well, they shouldn't have done it at all. So the first hour of AEW Dynamite was pre-taped due to the size of the blood and gut structure, making it impossible for AEW to be able to put the structure onto the rings live while people were there in the middle of a two-hour show. It just It never would have worked. They are not in an arena, so they could not have lowered it from rafters. And then building it just wouldn't have made any sense, especially with the hard roof that they were using. So that's why they taped the first hour ahead of time. Uh, But they still did keep two rings there, uh, just like, you know, NXT has, I guess, for War Games and WCW used to, where the two rings were there for all the other matches, even though they weren't using the actual structure. But what they did was they did the hard cam at an angle and they used the left ring camera side for, I think, the opening match and then the right ring, if memory serves, for the rest of the matches. And it was just really strange. The camera angle was weird. Uh, There were a ton of camera cuts, way more than usual, especially in the early going of the Blood and Guts match. It was very WWE-like how many camera cuts there were during that Blood and Guts match. During the rest of the show, it was still vastly toned down from WWE, but it was more than usual. So we'll break down the entire hour and 10 minutes that preceded that main event. Uh, We started with Kenny Omega and MT Nakazawa against Jon Moxley and Eddie Kingston in a tag team match that opened the show. Omega attacked the faces with his title before the match after Don Callis said Omega was not in the building. Omega broke a fall, but then immediately walked away like a coward as the faces hit half and half on Nakazawa for the win. There were so many better options to start the show than this. This match, despite having Omega, despite having Moxley and Kingston, it sucked. And Omega's motivation did not make any sense. Why would you break a fall and then quit on the match without being attacked? It just didn't make any sense. Uh, There was an immediate post-match attack with the rest of the elite taking out Mox and Kingston. Omega then came out and hit Kingston with the one-winged angel. 
It's clear Mox and Kingston are going to be facing the Young Bucks, presumably at double or nothing for the titles. But this, I got to say, it's rare to say this about AEW, but it was boring and repetitive. It's just really not getting me going whatsoever. It just isn't. Uh, Now, after the first hour, they did a major announcement outside of the Blood and Guts cage, live on screen. Omega cut a promo, uh, and it was exceptionally strange and very, very uneven. It was not a good segment for him at all. Uh, Tony Schiavone announced that Pac and Orange Cassidy will face off in an eliminator match next week, and the winner will fight Kenny Omega for the AEW World Championship at double or nothing. Omega said everyone knows Pac is great, and they would have a great match, but Schiavone emphasized that Pac has to get by Orange, who came out only for Omega to laugh in his face and tear him down. This seemed to drag on forever, given Orange doesn't usually speak. Omega stole his aviators and put them on Nakazawa, pushed him aside and treated him like a joke. And it was just a segment of Omega kind of tearing down Orange, which isn't necessarily the worst thing, but you'd think the guy would stand up for himself and punch him or shove him back or do anything and then get attacked or something. It just, it was very, very weird. As if the match itself was not a giveaway, this entire segment seemingly made it clear that Orange is going to beat Pac and face Kenny Omega for the AEW title at double or nothing. I hope this is a swerve because as much as the crowd I know would pop for Orange Cassidy, that's a dynamite match, a dynamite main event match, not a pay-per-view match for a world title. I don't need a comedy or partial comedy main event of a pay-per-view after the failed extreme main event at the last one at Revolution. You know what I'm saying? So this just doesn't really make sense why they would go in this direction. I know it's because they want a great fan response, but you could get a great fan response and use someone else. Pac, for example. Ray Phoenix would be another example. So I I don't know. This booking just doesn't really work for me. And look, I have no doubt that if we end up getting it, it'll be a very good match, a four-star minimum. That's the basement floor for what I would expect from Kenny Omega and Orange Cassidy. But I don't personally get amped up by this idea of a main event match. I would much rather Omega and Pac. Maybe they'll do an interference type of finish where Orange gets taken out and therefore Pac wins. But it's just not the booking that I would do. Got a DM slide from Adam McMonagle at AdamMick314. How is a one-on-one match an eliminator match? It's just another AEW gimmick that makes no sense. So I get what you're saying. An eliminator really should be multiple people in a match that get eliminated, pinned, you know, taken out of competition one by one with one person standing at the end. I agree with the general thesis of what you're saying. I find it a little bit nitpicky though. This is just what AEW has chosen to call their number one contender matches. And I believe the reason it's called an eliminator in AEW kayfabe is that if you lose the match, you're knocked out of contention for the title. So even if like you're the number one ranked guy, if you lose an eliminator, I believe you don't get an opportunity for the title as long as the person who's champion remains champion. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I believe that is the purpose of the name and the gimmick. All right, we'll move on with everything else that happened. Cody Rhodes fought QT Marshall. Look, I'm glad they did this on TV instead of pay-per-view. Arn Anderson, who could barely move, attacked QT Marshall outside, but the match continued. QT pulled his own tights halfway down his ass, 
right in the middle of the match, showing his crack. We got two ass cracks on a two-hour dynamite, both unnecessary. Uh, then he ate a DDT. QT hit crossroads for a near fall. He did a buckle bomb, and then the they did the tombstone standing reversals where you kind of rotate back and forth three times for another near fall. Cody hit crossroads for a 2.8 count. QT kicked out of crossroads. Uh, and then he started bleeding somehow. Who the hell knows how? QT gave him the finger, and Cody won with a figure four leg lock. This was very slow and plodding. There's a reason QT is a trainer and not a wrestler. Uh, a better booking would have been a Falls Count Anywhere match with them doing the figure four finisher atop the tour bus where they had the spot last week. The spot last week was better than the entirety of the match this week, and you never want to book that way. Then Anthony Ogogo slowly started walking out to the ring after the match. Cody could totally see him, but like kept turning his head to make believe he couldn't see him. So he ignored him coming to the ring. Ogogo got in the ring once again, single punch to the gut, and then he laid the Union Jack on top of Cody. This was just another strangely put together moment in what was largely a strange show. They're going to announce Cody's double or nothing opponent next week, which on its own is hysterical, by the way, that Cody gets a pay-per-view match just because he's Cody and he will announce his opponent. Like, think about that conceptually in wrestling. Could you imagine if WWE had, uh, Baron Corbin's not a fair example because Cody's better, but where you had Baron Corbin come out and basically say, okay, uh, my opponent for the pay-per-view is going to be this person without a title, without any reason for him to have a pay-per-view match. So I found that to be ridiculous. And going with Cody and Agogo, which is what I assume they're going to do on the pay-per-view, if they do that, I mean, it's it's great that they're putting a young guy in the spotlight, but I mean, shit, <laughs> that's just not a pay-per-view match. It's, a, it's again, a dynamite match. You want to make it a dynamite main event? I think you can get away with it. It's not a pay-per-view match. Uh, the best part of the first hour was Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page cutting an interview promo. Sky said Sting was sucking the blood of AEW, called him Steve, and said he had overstayed his welcome already in AEW. By the way, this was the first time, I think, in like 22 weeks or so that we didn't see Sting on Dynamite. So I was actually happy not to see him. Uh, Page then said he permanently injured Darby Allen uh, during their time in Evolve, which he just shit all over Evolve, despite them having very good matches in Evolve. Who, uh, so Darby comes out, he attacks him from behind. Page got taken out with a coffin drop from scaffolding. And then Darby got attacked with a garbage can by Sky, who legitimately threw him down a half set of concrete stairs. The promos were pretty shitty, but the attack was awesome. The brawl was awesome. Jim Ross was selling that Darby Allen injured his arm before we even saw him selling an injured arm. Overall, this was good, but that's because Darby saved it as per usual, because Darby Allen is that good, because Darby Allen's crazy and willing to take some ridiculous bumps. Later in the show, outside of the Butterguts um, stage, Miro cut a promo saying he has signed a contract for a TNT title match next week and he doesn't mind killing Darby if he has to. We already expected that Miro would beat Darby for the TNT title. To me, because of this attack, they just made it blatantly obvious that he's going to lose. Now Darby has an injury excuse, so Miro can just attack the shoulder or the arm or do whatever he does. His finisher wrenches back the neck and the shoulders. So right there, boom, you have a new TNT champion Miro next week. Uh, Britt Baker fought Julia Hart. I was glad we got this match. This is what AEW should be doing on Dynamite the whole time with Britt Baker rather than build her win-loss record on shows that no one watches. Just put her in squashes like this and then have her face a couple mid-range opponents, have her beat them, 
and then she becomes the number one contender. Instead, all of it's happened off screen. Baker hit the air raid crash and won easily with the lockjaw. And she is now in a title match against Takara Rashida at double or nothing. And as I've said for probably two months now, Britt Baker needs to win the AEW Women's Championship at double or nothing. There was a technique by Taz segment where Taz tore apart Christian Cage's signature moves. John Moxley also cut a promo on Yugi Nada ahead of their IWGP United States Championship match next week on Dynamite. NJPW allowed AEW to use a lot of footage and Moxley cut a expert level promo saying he would put Nagata down for good. I, I loved Moxley's promo. It was probably the second best part of that first hour. And then the final match, the final thing to talk about, we got a fatal four-way number one contendership eliminator match, SCU against Jurassic Express, against the Acclaimed, against the Varsity Blondes. Again, a weird situation where it's like, why are half these teams in a number one contendership match? And again, called an eliminator without people being eliminated. I think it would have been more exciting if people were eliminated from the match. It was disappointing to see them do one-on-one rules. You guys always know if I if there's a triple threat or fatal four-way tag team match, I want three or four people in the ring at the same time. And given that AEW tag matches are tornado style anyway, for the most part, even though they say they have rules, there was really no reason not to do it that way. So I don't know why you're doing a one-on-one with four teams. Frankie Kazarian tagged himself in late as SCU hit the BME on Brian Pillman Jr. for the expected and obvious win. The match was a mess. It ended what was a pretty terrible, I have to say, first hour of Dynamite. The whole thing was just poorly booked. It lacked intensity. The only things, again, like I said, that were actually good were Darby Allen's attack and John Moxley's NJPW promo. So that's it. That's AEW Dynamite Blood and Guts. And I gotta say, as I was watching that first hour and I was really unimpressed and not happy with what I was getting, my mind was, well, you know what? The first hour really doesn't matter as long as they deliver in the main event, which given that it was blood or guts, given the teams and wrestlers involved, I had zero doubt that they would. And I think largely the main event did deliver. It was exciting. It was entertaining. 75% of that match was good. But the other 25%, the truly excessive and unnecessary blading and the finish, it just really watered down what needed to be a great second hour in order for it to be a great show. So because of that, I found Blood and Guts to be completely mediocre as a show. And I would venture to say that in terms of special episodes for Dynamite, maybe this is their worst one yet. I don't know that that's the case. I'd have to think back about the New Year's Dash shows and is one of them, the New Year's Bash shows, I should say, I'm sorry. And was one of them worse Or was I disappointed by a bash in the beach or anything like that? I would really have to actually go back and think about it. But off the top, just kind of speaking extemporaneously here, I actually think Blood and Guts may have been my least favorite of AEW's special episodes. And that's really not what they needed to do. Just a couple weeks after being on their own on Wednesday, coming out of a bad rating last week, due in part largely to the presidential speech. Um, But a couple weeks prior to that, where they were eclipsing a million and you're like, oh my God, AEW is off and running. And then they then they give you this. So I'm going to be curious to see what the rating is this week. And I'm also going to be curious to see what the rating is next week. Did they turn people off? Because next week's show is loaded for AEW, just like it is for NXT on Tuesday. Both of them should get great ratings if you're only basing it on the card that's being announced for next week. Uh, NXT did not get a good rating this week. We'll see what AEW does. And we will talk about it as we 
move forward. As far as the way we move forward here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we have a huge week ahead next week. On Tuesday, we will be back as always with WWE WrestleMania Backlash Ultimate Preview, very special episode, along with a full breakdown of everything that happens on SmackDown and Raw. Of course, on Thursday, one week from now, we'll be back talking all things NXT and AEW. On Friday, after SmackDown goes off the air, we will be live on Twitter Spaces with our WWE WrestleMania Backlash Go Home Show. We're probably only going to do anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes, but in order for you to listen to that show, you need to not only have a Twitter account, so follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and create a Twitter account, but you also need to have the Twitter app for Android or iOS, one of those two. We will do a live show. It is something people really like. I know you guys enjoyed the go-home show we did ahead of WrestleMania. That was a podcast, a full podcast that we published. That's WrestleMania. Maybe we'll do that for SummerSlam and the Royal Rumble. But for the B-level pay-per-views, we'll do the live Twitter spaces. That way you guys can interact. We can provide some last-minute predictions and have a little fun on Friday night after SmackDown goes off the air. And then Sunday, one week from this Sunday, Two, basically two weeks from now, WWE, WrestleMania, Backlash, Instant Analysis. We know that those are your favorite episodes because of how many of you listen to them. So we will, of course, have our Instant Analysis as soon as WrestleMania Backlash goes off. So that's it for today. I appreciate you all listening to my breakdown of NXT and AEW Vintage Chris Manini. We'll be back with me on Tuesday for that WrestleMania Backlash Ultimate Preview. With all of that, I bid you adieu and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.